We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm your host Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And in this episode, the second of a two-part look at the film music of February 2022, we discuss the music of composers including Ramin Djawadi, James Horner, Patrick Doyle and more. So let's get right into it, Sean, by talking about Uncharted. Let's talk about Djawadi. Um, this is the score to the long, long gestated ad- adaptation of the uh, video games, on the Uncharted video games, of which there are four, and they're very Indiana Jonesy. It, the the character is Nathan Drake in that, and I think he's like a, supposed to be like a distant relative of like uh, Sir Francis Drake. And so the the first the first game is all about trying to find like a lost Spanish galleon and there's evil Nazis and all this stuff. Very Indiana Jones, very good, fun actually. The games, of which I've played two, I think, but uh, I think I've got them all somewhere on PS4 or something. But they, they're good fun. They're very popular, and they've it's literally taken them about fifteen years to get this film off the ground. Finally, has happened, and it stars Tom Holland as Nathan Drake, uh, Mark Wahlberg as. Uh, as Sully, his his mentor essentially, and the uh, and it's directed by Ruben Fleischer. Now, I haven't seen it yet. I am going to see. It. No, I'm not going to see it in the cinema. I am going to see it when it drops somewhere on streaming. I I've heard it's not good, and if I'm honest, I'm not surprised because the casting for this is is ridiculous. I mean, it's truly. <laughs> I don't know much you know about Uncharted, but. Yeah. If, if 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 someone lined up Tom Holland and ten other actors and said pick Nathan Drake, he would be the last person I would have picked, even for a prequel. You know, it it is it is a bit bonkers. Like if, if you need if Nathan Drake is the most tall, dark, handsome, square jawed, like fairly beefy guy you could imagine. He's Harrison Ford esque, right? Tom Holland is is many things. Good actor, seems a nice bloke. He's not Harrison Ford esque. Like I, 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 and Mark, Mark he, Wahlberg. He's not, he's not rugged, is he? He's not rugged. Is, is no, like he is not rugged. <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg, to some extent, fits the model. But really, Sully, perfect casting for Sully would have been someone like Sam Elliott, right? Imagine that kind of gruff, grey-haired, you know, American. It, it's just from first principles, bizarre choices that have gone through the development hell ringer, and you know. I think there are probably about half a dozen versions of Uncharted that would have been far more interesting and better cast than this, the one we've ended up with. The question is, I suppose, would we have had a better, would we have had a better score? Is this a good score? Because if this had been made in like 2009 or whatever, it probably wouldn't have been Juadi scoring it, I would guess. So what did you make? I don't know how much you know about all this, but what did you make of it on a musical level, Sean? Um, on a musical level, I thought it, it's got, it's got, yeah interesting that you make the 1990s comparison because this is the kind of movie that you would have probably have seen someone like mark mancina 
or Nick Blaine yeah. Smith scoring back in the 90s. You yeah. know, that kind of coming out of the Hans Zimmer stable. Well, if Hans Zimmer hadn't done mm. it himself, someone else, someone like that would have done it. And um, Because I think those stylistics are evident, at least in the main theme of Juadi's score. Incidentally, I interviewed Ramin Juadi about this uh, recently. He was really, really lovely. And whatever deficits the film has, Ramin Juadi is really, really nice, really nice person. And certainly, I think the main theme in its kind of quasi-organic synthetic makeup has definitely got overtones of what was then media ventures you know Hans Zimmer's fledgling um music studio empire that then became remote control productions you can definitely hear that I think in the main theme um which is kind of so it's not overly synthetic it's kind of there's a real hybrid mixture in there which is actually quite good fun to listen to and it's got a you know I say old-fashioned tone old-fashioned as in that's the kind of tone I would have expected from a 1990s action movie score you know once Hans Zimmer came in and completely redefined the musical landscape for movies like that you know with with things like Crimson Tide and you know Drop Zone and, and so on and so forth so that main theme is really good fun unfortunately I don't think it picks up the baton throughout the rest of the score um it does really it, 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 if it if it starts off being a 1990s Hans Zimmer score it then becomes a kind of mid to late 2000s post hands in the score. And you know what I feel about that kind of thing. You know, the sort of thing that Lorne <laughs> yeah. Balfe has indulged in a, a, a few too many times for my liking. Although, as I've said repeatedly, Lorne Balfe has really come into his own in the last few years and has done some really, really great stuff. But, you know, the idea of, of it, anonymous is the word. I would use um and it's a shame there are quotations of the original game soundtracks I'm not hugely up on on the history of the game soundtracks I know they started off with someone then they went over to Henry Jackman didn't they and um and I and, and Ramin Javadi did say there are quotations of some of the game themes in here but as I, I mean as I listened to it they were quite subtle I had to listen to them quite quite carefully they were quite fleeting I just think that um it suffers from the genericism that afflicts the movie. Um, and it, it was interesting. When I, when I spoke to Juadi, obviously, inevitably, I asked him about Game of Thrones. And he clearly seemed much more fired up about talking about Game of Thrones than he did about <laughs> Uncharted, which one would imagine, is he, right? Is he doing the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon? I well. didn't ask him about that. I don't think. I don't think he is. Um, oh, he didn't. I, I didn't bring it up. Um, that that but, seems like a real lost opportunity if he's not. To be fair, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I talked about the the idea of the. Um, oh, I just know, what, checked. He is. He is. Oh, oh he, is he is doing it. Doing oh, brilliant. That's okay, good. yeah, that's great. So, so there is yeah. that consistency there. Then I mean, I asked him about bringing. What does it mean to bring Game of Thrones to a live concert audience? And he said it's very, very gratifying to to be able to arrange these themes with which people have grown up, with which people are now familiar. You've got these thematic statements that that align people with the show. And he's like, to be able to bring that emotional immediacy to a live concert arrangement with people watching in front of him, he said that was very, very gratifying. He was quite clearly more interested in talking about that than Uncharted I got the impression of because I got the feeling that you know it's a fairly limp movie fairly uninspired not the worst thing and I don't think it necessarily inspired Giovanni to come up with you know with one of his better scores I, I've, I've been hot and cold on, on Giovanni I mean having spoken to him he's a really really nice person but it remains I'm still hot and cold on his music um, I, I, I'm usually quite a big fan of his really I, I, I love his Game of Thrones stuff I like a lot of what he's done with Westworld I 
I enjoyed, I even enjoyed stuff like The Great Wall, which wasn't a brilliant film yeah. by any means. You know, Matt Damon on The Great Wall of China, a bonkers film, really. But like, <laughs> uh, but the score was really good for that, I thought. So, and obviously he did the first Iron Man, which was which was good as well. He's done some good stuff for me, but I mean, it is a bit weird how it wasn't Henry Jackman because the first three games, the Uncharted games, were Greg Edmondson, who I That's think it, is Greg more Edmondson. of a... Yes. Yeah. I think he does quite a few game scores and things like that. And then he did the first three and then it was the fourth and fifth games when it kind of became a really, really big... Phenomenal. I remember, remember the fourth game coming out and it was huge it was being marketed like it was a movie you know it was massive and that's when it switched to jackman so they obviously had a massive budget they must have had a much bigger budget and they were able to get someone like jackman in um so it's weird how they haven't tried to get do that and have it be as consistent in that sense but then i think i suppose you could say the same with like the assassin's creed movie that didn't have the same composer as you didn't have like jesper kidd or uh, those you know people austin wintry or those kind of things it, it went for jed kurzel because it was justin kurzel directing it so i suppose it's the Javadi is a big name right now, particularly. Mm. You know, he's he big, probably bigger than Jackman, really. So that's probably possibly part of it that they want. They thought with with Javadi they'd get a very big score that that maybe they thought he could do a lot of the um, the historical sort of tie-in stuff with un- undoubtedly in Uncharted because it goes back to like the 15th century, like mystery with Spanish galleons and all this. Like I say, so I don't know. Maybe that was the thought process, and they thought maybe Jackman wouldn't have done that although I, I think he could have done like you know it, it, if you if you listen to stuff like his kong skull island score which we interviewed him about if you remember yeah then he can do that stuff so it's strange really it, i mean it sounds like henry jackman's score i mean there's very there's very yeah. little i mean the worst thing about it is it sounds like any number of other composers there isn't really anything yeah. in it that makes me think javadi i mean i, I also brought in that i loved his score for eternals which was a brilliant score you know the film didn't get the yeah. love it deserved i didn't think that the was, film was terrible but you know the mm. music was was great, and there's nothing in Uncharted that's anywhere near no um, as, as as good as that. And it, it's a shame. I just think that you know what can you do for for a film in which Mark Wahlberg, as ever, turns up, raises his eyebrows quizzically, and phrases everything like a question, which is now what Mark Wahlberg you know does in every. <laughs> Why are you standing around giving me one useless piece of information at a time? You know, like that, you know, like that from, from the happening. <laughs> he does. You know, he that's does what he do does. <laughs> Tell me he doesn't do that. That's no, he does. He, he does. does. It's, it's Everything's just... like that, man, when he talks. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, the voice, the voice just goes up at the end of every sentence in that Boston accent yeah. like that. You know, it's just yeah. like, really. Look. <laughs> yeah, he does. He did it in Deepwater Horizon, which I watched for the first time the other day. Which was, yeah. He does that all the time through that, you know? Yeah. And that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, the happening. Planning on murdering me in my sleep? What? No. Oh, don't get started on the happening. I'd say we'll be here all day with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Great no, score it, by James Newton Howard, though. I will say that's yes. the best thing about the film, yeah. That's true. But no, I agree. I thought this was quite uneven, really. I thought there was some decent action tracks in there. I thought... But like you said, it's quite sub-90s Hans Zimmer. There isn't really a thematic through line, which is bizarre, because if there was ever an opportunity to create a thematic, a proper Indiana Jonesy thematic undertone motif for Nathan Drake, it's it's in a film like this. Like, it, 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 is, it is begging for it. In a film that theoretically could spawn a franchise and that's absolutely what they've got their eye on with this and i haven't seen even seen the movie but i know that's going to be the case with especially with tom holland whether it will get that i don't know but they've got their eye on multiple uncharted movies so why would you not create a theme for drake 
that he's going to be up there. It's really straight. It, uh, uh, maybe he just couldn't do it, but then he's really good at that. He's yeah. really good at that, he, as we've seen in Game of Thrones. He you can know. do it. I, I, I think that yeah. was a case of him being directed not to do it. I think it's a classic thing. Of, maybe. This is very much a kind of... I'm going to sound so old here. This is a millennial Indiana Jones, quasi <laughs> Indiana Jones movie that's based on the video oh, you, games. You yeah, do I know sound I said old so old there. I've just grown a big grey. I've grown a big grey beard in the course of saying that. And I think that what's happened is that the franchise owners, that the, the director Ruben Fleischer, whoever, has basically said, "Look, we don't want a self-conscious score. It's an adventure score for an adventure film. We don't want the music drawing too much attention to itself." Which I get the feeling that philosophy goes behind a lot of blockbusters now. It's like it can count. It, can sound Maddening. sort of heroic, but we don't want it in your face in the manner of John Williams and Raiders Lost Art. Well, if that is the philosophy, that's ridiculous. Look, because as you yeah. say, this is the kind of movie that demands that kind yeah. of approach. You know, 100%. so yeah. And the weird thing is, Javadi did tell me that there are at least two or three themes in the score. He said there's the main theme. He said there's the theme for Nathan and his brother. I'm not. Like, mm. Well, clearly, the the, the the mixing of the score didn't really articulate those themes all that well. I mean, he told me that, that there are themes in there. So, I mean, yeah, they obviously didn't that come first out in the track, final mix. No, that first track, potentially, I can, I can feel, I can fight, I can see it. I can see it in that first track. I did think when I, when it started, I was like, oh, okay, if it's going to be like this, this could yeah. be quite good, yeah. you know, but it just didn't, it didn't do that in the end. So I think it, it's strange. It's, yeah, it, maybe it's got lost in the way that the album's been produced. Maybe it works better in the movie. Who knows? We haven't seen the film yet, either of us. So maybe it does. I don't know. But I was disappointed with this. I really thought that we would get something quite interesting here. Given given the subject matter, given the style of movie this will be, I thought, well, we might get a nice swinging adventure score here, you know? But it's not. It's not that. It's just a shame. I think it's just so it's subject to the kind of idiotic expectations that land on a film soundtrack in this area now, which is we, yeah. we you know, it, it, it's a soundtrack that belongs to a genre, but we're damned if we're going to allow it to sound like the classic adventure scores of old. Mm. I'm like, well, why? Like, why would you not? Yeah. You know, Don't I mean, it. maybe, you know, I mean, Ruben Fly, I mean, has Ruben Fleischer extracted any kind of memorable scores before? I mean, obviously, he did the first Venom movie, which was scored by Ludwig Göransson, which had a very, very dark quite violent turbulent score to which i actually thought was instrumentally quite interesting if deeply unpleasant to listen to on its own terms yeah but yeah yeah I, I don't know i think i just can't help but wondering if you know there are a lot mm. of cooks in the kitchen and maybe there was a desire well, to create a big thematic score and maybe the franchise owners went no that's that sounds too much like indiana jones we don't want it to sound like indiana jones yeah. even though it kind of is indiana jones you They're, know it's just like yeah <laughs> i mean it is oh my god it is like it, it yeah. is it, the games are so the, the games indiana are amazing jones. i've played the and games. they are They're brilliant yeah yeah it's, they are they're really good and and so it's i think they should have got henry jackman to do it and 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 let him do what he's done, what he did for the some of the uncharted music. To be fair, I think they should have just had it th- be thematically consistent there. But yeah, or, sh- or what Henry shame. Jackman did for the Jumanji films. You know, he gave yeah, great well, yeah, scores for yeah. the two Jumanji films. Yeah. I mean, that was properly orchestral, exactly. major key, brassy. You know, that that's the kind of tone that you surely want for a film yeah. like Uncharted, right? <laughs> it's it's a really wasted opportunity, and and you know I I who knows what will come of. It. I mean I think too many cooks is part of the problem with this whole thing in the first place. You know the 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 development hell story of this film is going to be a million times more interesting than anything that we get on screen, whether it's a franchise or not. I think, you know, so I I yeah I think real real shame, a real disappointment could have been so much better. Not terrible, but could have been so much better. 
I think this this might be this might be kind of related. This is slightly tangential. It's not related to Uncharted specifically. I'm not I'm not sort of leveling this at Ramin Javadi. This is an industrial thing. There was a really really brilliant Vanity Fair article that was released within the last week or so about the nature of who oh, yes. did you see this about who is who's yeah. responsible for taking credit for a film score who is the actual yeah. composer who is the auteur does one composer write everything or do they farm out individual themes to individual people but does the one composer still take credit for everybody else's work it was really quite revealing and quite damning i would encourage anyone to go and read that because it's quite disconcerting in terms of some composers are very very good at crediting their alleged ghostwriters in inverted commas some composers are very good at that and they bring these additional orchestrators and composers into the fold and they actually put them on a platform and say look this person did that theme you know whereas i'm the name on the album cover i bring it all together this person did that theme whatever other composers don't do that as overtly and there's a question of who's responsible for doing what effectively, which I thought was, yeah. was actually a very sobering and very, very interesting analysis of obviously an industry that is going through an incredibly pressurised, difficult time at the moment. And, you know, I think that the score for Uncharted is pro- subject to a real pressure cooker environment in which you've got a movie based on a very, very successful PlayStation gaming franchise. And the expectations on it, the commercial expectations on it may be... Maybe that's what sands sort of soars away at the edges of what could have been a really bold, adventurous score. Like maybe things just get whittled and watered down to such an extent that what you get is a fairly limp approximation of a score. I don't know. I mean, I've kind of bolted two philosophies together there, two things together, but I think it's maybe broadly all connected Mm. on some level. No, I think I think you might be right. That that uh, piece is called "The Minions Do the Actual Writing: The Ugly Truth." of how movie scores are made, as you say, on Vanity Fair by Mark Rotzo. So, I yeah, go and check that out, guys. It is a really good read, and it, it I think it, it is quite illuminating, and it does make you wonder with some of these scores that we get, really. So let's move on to a very, very different score, very, very different kind of movie. Let's talk about The Duke by George Fenton. So this is a film that just came out, as we record, the score dropped like the day it came out. There wasn't any any preamble for that, <laughs> yeah. so we had to listen to it quite late in the day. And this is a uh, uh, the the last movie by uh, Roger Michel before he sadly died of a heart attack. I think it was last year. One of the great underrated British film directors for me, Roger Michel. He's he's made he made some incredible films over the years, and and it, he probably best known. Well, actually, not best known because it's not remembered. He's not remembered, but he directed Notting Hill, for instance. Which I really like, Notting Hill. I think Notting Hill's a really good movie. Yeah, it's a really sweet um, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really... yeah. And and he, he, but he's done. He did so many really, really good films. Uh, things like Enduring Love with Daniel Craig and Reese Fans, which is a cracking movie. The Mother again with Daniel Craig. Um, a lot of his pre-Bond stuff, which is really good. There, um, he almost did Quantum of Solace actually, um, and I would have loved to have seen him direct that, um, but it didn't happen in the end. Just a really good, solid career, full of interesting films. And The Duke is his last one, um, starring Jim Broadbent and uh, Helen Mirren. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of a bit of a caper, basically, set in the 60s. But it's very much a best exotic Marigold Hotel movie. <laughs> you know, yeah. one for the oldies. But it's got a really nice score by George Fenton here, I thought. Like, we haven't seen the film, obviously, because it's just dropped as well. But uh, a lot of fun, this. Didn't you, didn't you find 
I, I loved it. I thought it's really lovely to see George Fenton being attached to a high profile movie again, um, because we don't really hear an awful lot of George Fenton nowadays. Um, one of Britain's finest film composers. Bizarrely, he's attached to pretty much every single one of Ken Loach's movies going back to the 90s, but I'm damned if I can remember a scrap of notation of any music from a Ken Loach movie. I mean, you don't come out of Ken Loach <laughs> movies thinking of music, <laughs> no. do you? Really? No, you don't um, come out of Daniel Brake thinking, wow, what a score. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that score was amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's really lovely to see George Fenton being attached to a commercial movie with two big names, you know, Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren, that actually allows his music to take full flight because George Fenton is a wonderful composer, really versatile. I mean, you think of everything from like the electronic menace of the company of wolves to something more recently relatively more recent like valiant you know the remember that the animated pigeon movie from like the yeah. early 2000s yeah. which had a wonderful score to it lovely like ron goodwin-esque score to it george fenton is really really versatile and really great and obviously things like dangerous liaisons and things but george fenton is really good at doing comedies because i look back through his cv and you know i i mentioned this to you off off camera one of his last high profile movies prior to this prior to the duke was the lady in the van the Nicholas Heitner adaptation of the Alan Bennett. Brilliant film. You know, it could be said that all the vans that Mrs. Shepard painted attain the (laughs) consistency of thick yellow custard or scrambled egg. It's like, I mean, it's just, I mean, that film and the use of the the Shostakovich aping waltz for Maggie Smith's character, Mm. you know, the fact Mm. that that main theme has got that kind of grandiosity, that also slight air of derangement and pomposity about it. It just suited her character brilliantly. I listened to that just last night and it's wonderful. It's lovely to see George Fenton again, being able to exercise those comic chops on this and what he does. I mean, he doesn't do anything particularly original. The idea of jazz to emphasize the conceit of a caper i mean that goes right the way back to like the 1950s and 1960s but for some it works there's clearly a reason why filmmakers and composers keep using the idiom of jazz for comedy and i'm wondering if it's because because jazz in and of itself has got a kind of improvised unpredictable air to it with unusual you know meters and time signatures you don't quite know where the track is going to go and obviously in comedy, you don't want to know where the joke is going to land necessarily. I'm wondering if that's got something to do with it. Um, either that or the instrumentation that's used in jazz has got can have a devious comic register if it's pitched correctly. You think of like a sort of a bass clarinet or a, or a trombone or a trumpet. If it's pitched right, there's something about the tonality of that that suggests kind of humour and kind of foolishness and absurdity um, and, and sort of deviousness. I don't know. I mean, that that's more of a philosophical thing, really. But either way, I I, I really like what George Fenton did with this. I thought it was really sweet and really entertaining. Yeah, it's... yeah. I'm. I, I yeah. Me too. I thought it was quite. It was very fun. It was very uh, that that particular that theme, particularly the Duke theme, is great. Like I, I just you're just there, like you know, clicking your fingers along. It's really good, really jaunty, quite melancholy at points as well. I thought like it was. There are points where it gets quite sad. And I mean, I think the film is going to be a real balance of that. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie, actually. But I think it's going to be a balance of quite capery, but also quite sad at the same time. So, yeah, I, I thought it had a nice a nice balance to it. It really reminded me of places of a film that I loved in the 90s. I don't know if you remember it, but it was the Bill Murray in The Man Who Knew Too Little. Yeah, do you remember that I film? Do, I do remember that. Yeah, and it, it had a yeah. great score by Christopher Young that yeah. did 
which was really like plinky plonky, jazzy, you know, very spy natured. In you know, it was it was a bit of a take, I think, on a lot of like the sixties kind of spy stuff. Just just a really fun film. I really like that film. And so it just it reminded me of that kind of register a little bit. That I don't think the Duke will be the same kind of movie necessarily, but I, that that kind of register, that fun register, not taking itself too seriously. But then at the same time, the Duke obviously there are points where it does do that, and I think Fenton really gets the balance right there. I I, I found it a very very nice, enjoyable, fairly breezy. So it's not that long either. The, the album fairly breezy. Listen, this. So and I, I hope the film is similar. Actually, yeah, then on, on, again, to, to return to something I mentioned in the previous episode, the idea of brevi- brevity in album presentation, the idea of the album, it's got just enough music to articulate itself without becoming overladen. And I think 30 minutes of this kind of music is the perfect length. You don't want any more than that because it could become quite insufferable and quite irritating. And I think that there are melancholic aspects. I mean, there's the theme for Marion, which is the sister of Jim Broadbent's character, Campton Bunsen. That, that's that got the more of the piano theme to it, which is melancholic. Yeah. So there is emotional sincerity as well as humour in it as well, which is something that George Fenton always does very, very well. I mean, I mean, certainly if you're, if you're talking sincerity in terms of George Fenton, you've got to look towards the, the, the nature documentary scores that, he've done, that he's done for the BBC, which are extraordinary. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, didn't he pla- do the Blue Planet? The Blue Planet and Planet Earth yeah. and, and a few others. I mean, I saw the, the Planet Earth sections from the Planet Earth score being performed live in, in Bristol and it was just astonishing. I mean, the Iguazu Falls sequence with that really piercing trumpet and those rising strings is just amazing. So George Fenton is, again, like we mentioned on the previous episode with Theodore Shapiro, he is sorely underrated and he's nowhere near utilised as much as he should be on modern day films so full credit to the late Roger Mitchell for bringing him in I'm assuming it was Roger Mitchell's choice to, to bring in George Fenton I'm assuming it wasn't the producer's choice yeah um, so full credit to him for doing that um, I thought this was a really really nice charming breezy jazzy caper school but, you know fingers crossed we'll now get more high profile projects for George Fenton now pretty much yeah 100% absolutely agree look forward to seeing it definitely when it when it drops so let's talk about another uh, fairly low-key film that came out recently. This is Kimmy by Steven Soderbergh, uh, whose retirement is going very well. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's having the most prolific retirement I've ever seen. And this is this came out, uh, just dropped, I think, in the UK anyway. It's dropped on Sky Cinema. And it stars Zoe Kravitz. And it, it is, I mean... Okay, score by Cliff Martinez. I'll come to that in a minute, which I think is a really good piece of work. But the film itself, I I think the, this, I think, is the first post-COVID thriller that we that has come out. I, I can't think of another film that does what Kimmy does, which is very much about a, a corporate conspiracy, essentially. It's a, it's a little bit Rear Window. It's a little bit Brian De Palma. It sort of brews it all up together. At the end, it, it even turns into a little bit of, like, you know, Taken-esque revenge action stuff with Zoe Kravitz. And I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a really good thriller in itself, but it was really nice to actually see COVID being recognised in a, in a cinematic story to the point where the main character, played by Zoe Kravitz, is an agoraphobe. And it's partly because she can't, she's scared to go outside because of COVID. And she, you know, and, and Soderbergh shoots it very claustrophobically in that way. 
and th there's people wearing masks and using hand sanitizer. And I know there's two there's two ways to look at this, I guess, isn't there, about whether people want to see COVID depicted in movies, especially given it's still going on. And yes, okay, we might be coming towards the tail end of the pandemic, emphasis on might, but it's still going on. I personally do want to see it recognised. You know, I, I, I think I think it, it, it is such a massive moment in our in our global story. I, I think it would be weird if cinema doesn't. So I'm really pleased to see a film like Kimmy, which is a, a it's not going to be super memorable necessarily, but it tackles it in a in a punchy, vibrant way over like an hour and twenty minutes. I, before we even talk about the music. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the film yet, but what's your take on post-COVID cinema, I guess, in a way? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting that we've had, we've had in the midst of COVID cinema with things like Rob Savage's Host, which went out on Shudder, which was a brilliant that's film. True. You know, that's true. Yeah, that was a that. really cracking like, hour-long little horror movie. Probably one of the yeah. scariest horror movies I've seen in quite a long time, actually. The yeah. idea of it's all done... Same sort of you know mo mobile cam you know desktop cam kind of movie in which people at home are like menaced after a seance that was really good so already i mean people it is remarkable how quickly the art the art industry can adapt to these situations i mean the fact that steven soderbergh has turned this around relatively quickly to react to the covid landscape shows how a lot of these filmmakers can move very very fluidly and and very rapidly um, I mean, I think we're just we're at the forefront of all that. We are going to see so many yeah. remarkable artistic voices coming out of this, reacting to this in either through documentaries or fictional movies, or maybe like a mixture of both. Um, you know, not just films, but like books, art, you know, paintings, everything, you know, um, music as well. No, I'm I'm really interested. I mean, it's hard to say where we are at the moment because obviously we are still in the middle of the pandemic, aren't we? You know, certain political leaders would have us believe that it's finished, but it's obviously it's not finished. Um, no, it's still you know, going on. Yeah. Um. So I think maybe we need to give it a bit of distance before we actually know where we're going with this as a, as a genre or subgenre of of film. But Kimmy, I thought I've seen Kimmy. I saw, I saw it on. I saw it, and it was um a very interesting little movie. I haven't liked a lot of Steven Soderbergh stuff recently. Yeah, um, same. I've thought mm. a lot of his stuff recently has been kind of thumbnail sketch, not particularly emotionally engaging, but I like this one. I thought Zoe Kravitz was very good and it did have that, you know, it assimilates that air of paranoia that we've had in the era of COVID. You know, the idea of going outside being sort of wrought with all manner of dangers and threats that we can't see. Um, I thought it got that very well, actually. Um, and the score, wow. I mean, the score is one of, the best isn't ones it we're really good on this it's really yeah, yeah, yeah. great it's <laughs> oh, so i've listened to it twice now i listened to it again last night and uh, not uh, uh, you know quite late at night uh while i was doing some other stuff and it, it it's just cliff martinez who uh, i think he, he does a, he's done a few soderbergs hasn't he in the past i think yeah and he's it's quite hypnotic isn't it i, I it re and dreamlike yeah it's got um but again it, it might be a bit of a cliche it might be a bit bernard herman it's it's yeah it's, it's bernard yeah. herman not necessarily bernard herman in psycho which is that's the side of bernard herman that's aped in practically every post-1960 thriller score this is more the bernard herman that you got in something like citizen kane which was his, you know, his breakout score that very kind of like languid lots of like bass woodwinds and bass flutes like that kind of legato kind of supple 
air of like melancholic kind of threat. Not the threat isn't stated that overtly, but it is kind of there. And you do get some like choppy double bass sort of thriller material later on. But it's augmented with these very subtle electronic effects because obviously it's a contemporary story it's about technology and the way cliff martinez threads that in with the orchestral elements i thought was brilliant i thought really fluidly done really sophisticated um he's another composer who doesn't get anywhere near as much love as he should frankly don't, don't you think yeah oh god yeah oh god yeah he's he's done some brilliant stuff i didn't he didn't he do um solaris Yes, Soderberg. he did the Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, that was a really good score. Quite oh, I emotional love that score. score. Yeah, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful score. He did the Neon Demon, I think, didn't he, oh, as well? For, Nicholas um, Winding Refn, yeah. Nic- oh, an incredible yes, piece of work, that. One of my favourite. And, favorite- again, that had, and that had that tinkling sort of diamond thing that I really stand out for the Neon Demon. That sort of, you know, that kind of. Yes. So he's really good at the, getting that. Yeah, yeah. He's so good. Such a good director. Um, Neon Demon had that extraordinary opening credit sequence. One of my favourite opening credit sequences in recent years in which all you hear is Cliff Martinez's score. And it really, it's almost like an overture, really. It's kind of like this tangerine dream aping overture, but also Only God Forgives, Um, you know, again, for winning reffing. The score for Contagion. The Fountain. Yeah, 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 The Fountain. Contagion, Contagion, the soda book. That was brilliant score. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it great? That is now the sound of paranoia. That's the sound of paranoia. <laughs> it's, it's been adopted as the sound of paranoia in the COVID age because yeah. Contagion is now the most scientifically accurate film yeah. relative to what we're going through. And the score has now become like the anthem of disease almost in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Martinez is really great and he's always had a very interesting collaboration with Soderbergh. And this score, again, it's only 26 minutes. It's exactly the right kind of length. I mean, I could have done with this one being a bit longer, actually, really. But it's the use of the organic and the synthetic. So something both human and inhuman kind of colliding in the middle is very, very, very well articulated, I think, in the music for this. It's very stylish. Um, Yeah, I I was really impressed with this one. Me too. Unexpectedly, I was like, wow, where's this come from? Because, you know, the film sort of came, has come a little bit out of nowhere as well. And the film is brewing up quite a bit. You know, it's not just about COVID. There's also technology in there because Kimmy is is an Alexa-style device as well. So it's brewing up a lot of different ideas, this film. So, uh, yeah, this is Soderbergh back on form, definitely. And I think... um, Martinez has done a great job. Yeah, I would really encourage people to watch Kimmy, and 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 it works really well independently. This music, it's such a great listen on its own, and it really hypnotizes you a little bit, particularly towards the middle as well. I I, I thought it was excellent. So yeah, top stuff, top stuff. Different register, but let's talk about Cyrano, which is the new Joe Wright musical, uh, historical musical starring Peter Dinklage which is a film that I, I suppose it, it, we do talk about musicals sometimes, don't we? But this is, this is a, a blend really, isn't it? Of actual, actual music with, um, with, with Aaron and Bryce Dessner's orchestral stuff running through it. So it's, it's not as straightforward necessarily as a traditional score that we talk about. It's not a sung through musical, is it? I think that's what it's, it's not, it's not a yeah. movie in which, in which the songs drive the narrative forward, you know, not like, um, 
you know, lame is Northern Prisoner 24601. You know, it's not like that kind of thing, you know, where, where they just literally just belt out everything and you're like, oh God, are yeah. we going to be here for two and a half hours of them doing that? And it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not like that, Cyrano. <laughs> I, I find them wearying, those things, yes. you know? I mean, I don't yeah. mind, I'm not the biggest fan of musicals. I like musicals sometimes, but I, you know, yeah, when it's just that all the way through, I'm just like, oh God. Like, I remember seeing Les Mis on stage and I think I was the only person in the audience who couldn't wait to get away. Honestly, <laughs> I, I really did. I was, I just was like, oh god, no, no. So you know, I think so. These kind of things aren't necessarily for me, really. But what did you think of this musically? I, I again, massively baggy, overlong album. Although obviously, there's a lot of musical narrative to tread over in the movie. I haven't seen the movie, incidentally, directed by Joe Wright, but. Joe Wright has got a very deliberately stagey theatrical look to a lot of his film, to a lot of his movies anyway. And I think this this movie, as I understand it, has got that. So the idea of the, the, the people singing their way through certain aspects of it probably makes narrative and dramatic sense. It fits with the aesthetics of Joe Wright's um, direction. Um, usually, obviously, you've got Peter Dinklage as Cyrano. Cyrano or Serrano? I thought it was Serrano, but they call him Cyrano it- in the... Serrano uh, de Cyrano de Bergerac, Serrano de Bergerac. I, I thought it was Serrano de Bergerac. Potato, potato. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it could, it could be. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I choose choose whichever you like. I don't mind really. Yeah, let's call him because he's called Serrano in the film. Let's call him Serrano. But I mean, I mean, Aaron and Bryce Dessner, obviously famous from the National. Who, who I'm not overly familiar with the National, but some of their stuff is terrific. Um, the the use of the Terrible Love alternate, which was in the trailer for The Goldfinch, the film The Goldfinch. That's a brilliant song. Oh, yeah. Really, really Mm. euphoric and yet melancholic at the same time. So I think Aaron and Bryce Dessner's sort of pop rock stuff has got kind of a cinematic sensibility to it anyway, based on what what I've heard from it. And obviously they've done sort of several noted film scores anyway. So they've kind of straddling that kind of rock music, pop music, film score divide. And I think therefore it that they're they're kind of a good fit for this in as much as it involves singing but it also involves that orchestral dramatic undertow so it seems to play to their strengths quite well and obviously you've got the cast members peter dinklage as Cyrano, Haley bennett as roxanne and then kelvin harrison jr as christian threading their voices and alternating with i think these very very well dramatized string passages i think the orchestral writing is very very good but again that's not inherently surprising because both the Destinies have done great stuff with the National and they've done great film school work in the past. So I'm not in- entirely surprised by that. Um, I haven't seen the film, so I can't really talk about the context of it. I think I don't think the songs are all that memorable, even if they make narrative sense. I don't think the songs are all that good. I think a lot of them are quite bland. I preferred the orchestral only sections of it, really. Yeah. I I I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. Like I I the I don't I honestly as awful as it is to say I really don't have any interest in the film at all. Really, I I, I might watch it. You know, it might be one I, I watch with Mrs. Black and you know, but I won't go to the cinema. Really, it's not really my cup of tea necessarily. But I, I found it fairly rousing. Like I th- I thought it was quite. I thought some of the songs I'd listened to were quite good actually. I thought I thought actually this is all right. And to be fair, I've been hearing this is a great film actually. I've been hearing it, and I do like some of what Joe Wright's done. I mean, I, I loved Anna Karenina. I thought mm. that was a great film, yeah. and the score by Dario Marinelli for that is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So he is a good director, and he does 
he, he is, like you say, he's very, he's quite stagey, but he creates some very beautiful landscapes, really, and, and, and production styles for his films. But the music was, I, I really do think this is one where it's, it's a bit like, the, you know, any of these musicals, whether they're films or something like Hamilton, say, you've got to really watch it first, I think, maybe. To it, and then go and discover the score of the soundtrack, and then and if you really take to the movie and you take to that those songs, I think you're going to enjoy this more. Potentially, I think it is obviously inextricably tied up with what you're seeing on the screen in this case. So, without that context, it didn't really do a lot for me. I suppose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because in so many musicals, the songs themselves are the set pieces, aren't they? Whereas I get yeah. the impression in this, the songs aren't really set pieces. It's more of a narrative conceit. So therefore, when you listen to it on the album, you're like, okay, why is this flip-flopping between orchestral standalone bits and singing when it, the movie, strictly speaking, isn't a musical? So maybe maybe the songs should have been extrapolated and put on their own album and maybe the score should have been released on its own. I, I don't know, but there is clear... There's there's obviously thematic sharing because the themes from the score appear in appear in the songs. So there's all there's I mean you know but probably probably why they've done it like that. I mean it is interesting that Joe Wright didn't reprise his collaboration with Dario Marinelli on this because this would have been exactly the kind yeah. of period romantic movie for which Dario Marinelli is famous because he won the Oscar for best score for Joe Wright's Atonement, which was a, which was a great score. Um, I mean, you know, Marinelli also wrote the score for Darkest Hour, you know, the absurdly overrated Winston Churchill movie with with, with Gary Oldman, which I, I, I didn't I didn't really get on with that film at all. I, I just um, I thought it was really hammy and just unconvincing stage. Well, not again, one of his best. Yeah. You know, it, that that movie was kind of an embodiment of the you know, when Eddie Izzard is talking about British versus American movies. <laughs> and um, he says British movies are exemplified by, you know, British movies full of British actors opening doors going, oh, I'm, oh, what? Oh, what is it, Sebastian? I'm arranging matches. <laughs> and it's like, and, you know, it's like, it's that, that is darkest hour to me. That is exactly it. And then when he translates yeah, it, it yeah. he says that's what happens in, to go back to Star Wars from the previous episode. You know, the Death Star just full of British actors opening doors going, oh, I'm, oh, <laughs> what is it, Lieutenant Sebastian? <laughs> it's just the rebels, <laughs> sir. They're here. <laughs> My God, man, do they want tea? <laughs> it's like, it's like that, that to me, that sums up what a lot of Joe Wright's movies are actually like. Again, I, I can't yeah, say that yeah, about yeah. Cyrano, Cyrano, Serrano, yeah. however the hell you say it, because I haven't seen it, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be the biggest debate coming out of it, I think. Cyrano or Serrano? Cyrano or yeah. Serrano? I've um, always said Serrano de Bergerac. That's how Serrano, I've said it. I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but you know, Serrano. Just... <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do it in my head. Serrano, Serrano. I think it is Serrano de Bergerac. Yeah, maybe it's the British American thing. Yeah, let's get Eddie yeah. Izzard on it. He'll figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's uh, that's Serrano, which is which is out now. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about then, before we've got one more movie to do from this month, but let's go and do my disaster movie pick from uh, last time. You had the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, so I, as part of this two-part episode, I've picked one as well. And I, I uh, teased last week that it was going to be water-based. So I've gone for the biggest movie of the 90s. And I, think, I, th- I don't think that's unfair to say, or one of the biggest movies of the 90s. James Cameron's Titanic, scored by... James Horner, which is 25 years old this Christmas, actually. I've just realised that. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> just, I know. 
scary. I mean, I I I will I remember vividly Titanic coming out in the cinemas. I was about fifteen at the time, and this was the period where, like, this was post Romeo Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and all girls worshipped Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, the ground he walked on because he was still that teen heartthrob idol. Um, a lot of lads fancied after Heavenly Creatures. A lot of lads fancied Kate Winslet. Um, so you know that was good. Uh, <laughs> so it, I mean, it, well, it, it, Leonardo DiCaprio was beautiful in this. I will, I will say outright, he was. He oh, was yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. As a teenage boy, it was the it was like the take that effect. I hated him at the time. I hated him like because <laughs> all it, the it, girls it, liked him. It was him and Hanson, wasn't it? Because Hanson was yeah. kind of around at that, that time as <laughs> yeah. well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, Hanson. Yeah, <laughs> hated him, but. Um, but yeah, but he was, you know, obviously that was a major draw for people with this. I mean, it, it, it it's a funny old film. I, I feel like this is one that I want to go and watch again. It's been a long, long time. The prevailing wisdom I always had was that it gets good when the ship starts to sink and the rest of it isn't. Now, that might not necessarily be true, actually. With, with older eyes, it might be that that first hour, hour and a half or whatever, building up the Jack and Rose stuff... And all of that it might actually be much more compelling than I remember. But I don't know. I, either way, I think Titanic is famous for so many reasons. I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that it is a fantastic piece of filmmaking for the most part. And it has a score by James Horner, which is one of his very best, I think. Especially when going back and listening to it on its own. What do you think, Sean? It's well. It got in the Oscar, so it got James Horner yeah. the Oscar. It is currently the best-selling soundtrack of all time. You know, is that still, right? Really? Still? Best, still? Yeah, still the best-selling soundtrack wow. according to Classic FM. Yeah, obviously largely wow. propelled by by the Celine Dion. You know, my heart will go on, which um, James Cameron didn't want in the film. You know, and, and James Horner recorded that on the sly and presented it to him. And it's like, here we go. And look look what came out of that, right? I mean, you know, so James Horner had really good dramatic and also commercial instincts as well on occasion. It's interesting. I interviewed um, the former head of 20th Century Fox Music, Robert Kraft, just recently, who's brilliant, a gold, gold mine of anecdotes. I mean, bearing in mind, he took over the role in the 1994, I think he said. So he was in charge of Fox Music when Titanic was being made amidst this really, really difficult, turbulent production that involved two studios, had to basically get involved to bail out the budget, really. Um, which, so it was, you know, everyone thought it was doomed to fail and then famously it didn't. You know, as you said, it became the biggest film in the 90s. But Robert Kraft told me that James Cameron had originally envisaged no more than 45 minutes worth of music in the movie, bearing in mind it was three hours long, and they'd subsequently budgeted for that. And it's like, oh no, we're actually going to need quite a lot more music than that as as a result of it. So I think that I think that goes to some way of explaining why there's a lot of electronics in the score. There are a lot of synthetic substitutes for the orchestra. There is a lot of orchestra in it, but there's a lot of kind of bulking out with these quasi kind of new agey synth effects. I think a lot of that was down to budgetary concerns as far as I can make out. Um, obviously it was, it was, you know, that's what people were listening to at the time, you know, aesthetically that, that new age stuff was obviously at its peak, probably in the late nineties, early two thousands, wasn't it? And I think well, that, well, Cameron said he was, he was listening to Enya when he wrote this yeah. and he wanted Enya to, to score it. And she said, no. So, yeah, I think it was that all that stuff was very, and then Lord of the Rings sort of 
picks that up a little bit, doesn't it? Because Enya with, with that with Enya, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah Fellowship so, of the Ring, she did, wasn't yeah, it? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So that is very in vogue at this late nineties, early noughties point, isn't it? So maybe it was a combination of like inspiration, aesthetics, and financial considerations that basically led to a very, very singular sort of quite modernistic score for a film that's obviously set at the turn of the 20 at the beginning of the 20th century you know one of the 20th century's greatest tragedies and it's a score that owes stylistically owes a debt to the kind of the, the late the late 20th century as opposed to the early one although as I said there is there is plenty of fabulous orchestral writing in it I don't in all honesty that that pulsating electronic choir I don't know if that's held up as well in recent years i mean it it is arresting i think it's very much of its time as in 1997 rather than mm. you know rather, rather than 1912 mm. um yeah probably yeah yeah i mean it's it's an in, it's an interesting one i mean it's james horner's most famous score in as much as it got yeah. him the oscar and it was attached to it was attached to the biggest film of the 90s and it's the most successful soundtrack album of all time i'm Kind of hard pressed to say it's his best. I mean, saying James Horner's best is a very, very loaded wow. proposition. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, no, it is. <laughs> I don't think it's his best. Don't don't be wrong. I think it's it's up there, but I don't I don't think it is his best score. No, but I think it's got it's got tracks in it and passages that are just fantastic. I think really, really well done. I mean, his his melodic intuition is just brilliant. Is I mean the way he adapts the "My Heart Will Go On" theme for Rose for Kate Winslet's character. I mean the the, the track. I think it's called the portrait where where it gets a piano iteration. That's one of the organic elements, one of the purely organic elements. It's just heart meltingly beautiful for all the self-referential claims like the fact that, yeah, it sounds like Cocoon. Yes, it sounds like the Spitfire Grill. Yes, it sounds like Legends of the Fall. Yes, it does. I mean, you know, the crashing piano from the Pelican Brief in Apollo 13. Yeah, you know, with with any James Horner score, you've basically got to buy into it as a self-referential kind of meta exercise in a way. Yeah, because he does that in loads of films, doesn't he? He borrows from other stuff that he's done. Absolutely. We've we've said this before, definitely. But But he's so good at weaving in those themes like you know there's one track uh, i think it's the sinking where it all starts to kick off and he weaves in the heart does go on theme brilliantly and then he'll it'll swerve off then into a dangerous sort of it's it's you know it's it's masterful really the way he manages to do that i mean it's it's really um it's a really interesting thing because i i read um I read an article from the New Yorker from Alex Ross, who's a really, really good music critic and has done quite a lot about film music. And he took aim at James Horner's score for Troy, which was a late replacement for Gabriel Yared, who was thrown off the movie after working on it for a year, very, very controversially. And, you know, the fact that James Horner, not just in Troy, but in his other scores, is very, very blatant in his quoting of Shostakovich and Benjamin Britten, and Alex Ross took like a kind of quasi tongue in cheek point of view, which is like, look, maybe James Horner is implicitly commenting on the fact through hit through these quotations, there is nothing original in music anymore. And maybe this is kind of like a very, very meta commentary about, you know, how all music is indebted to what's come before. Or Alex Ross says the man is just a hack. So and then that, and that's the conclusion of the article. It's called, you take from it what you bring to it. It's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I don't think James Horner was a hack. James Horner at his best was a genius. And, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. you know, you listen to like Legends of the Fall or Glory or Field of mm. Dreams or Aliens or An American Tale. I mean, you know, James Horner yeah, was not a hack. It's, God, no. 
Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. You yeah. know, one of my favorites. There's so many, so many. Clear and Present Danger, which I love. You know, I've talked yeah. about before. Brainstorm. I, I, Brainstorm is yeah. a brilliant score. Yeah. So many, so many. I think he. It, it, it was interesting though. Right? This was the first one he'd done with Cameron since Aliens. So that was like over over a decade because they'd had a bit of a falling out. So he hadn't done Terminator. He hadn't done. Well, obviously he wouldn't have done because that was Brad Fiedel always wasn't it but he, he didn't do true lies he didn't do the abyss you know which could have easily been james horner scores if you you know seen it slightly differently but then after this he did i mean he's only done have avatar after this hasn't he cameron he's only made yeah <laughs> he's only made avatar after so it's incredible really um but he did avatar obviously before he died so it, it's it sort of re-cemented their team up really with that didn't it well yeah because 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 you know, the the making of the Alien score was unbelievably stressful and difficult, and James Horner ran out of time because because the the, ed, the 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 film didn't finish editing until James Horner was midway through the scoring sessions at Abbey Road in London. So James Horner ran out of time. Not his fault. It was it was the fault of Cameron and you know the the the, the logistics of the production. And the fact that he had to write the Bishop's Countdown cue overnight, Bishop's Countdown, which is one of the most famous action cues ever, he wrote that overnight. And they, him and Cameron went their separate ways. And then Cameron apparently was brought to tears listening to the Braveheart score in his car. Um, and that's what compelled him to reach out to James Horner and go, look, water under the bridge let bygones be bygones let's come together and write a score for this story about about I, titanic and it, i love it, how cameron for all these for all the facts he makes all these macho films about like <laughs> he's, yeah. in, he's in his car he's listening to enya he's crying about yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's a big soppy one isn't he really I, I, I think what he comes across on set i think that's a front that's a front that he needs yeah. to adopt because he does make these great big massive constructions these incredibly difficult movies and i think he needs everyone to pull together he needs everyone's do 200% I get the feeling he's not actually like that off camera really very much but obviously James Horner had problems with him on Aliens but this was a much more harmonious Titanic was a much more harmonious process and I do think the thematic writing for all the overtones of the previous James Horner scores particularly something like the Spitfire Grill which is a really overlooked masterpiece of a score it's composed just the year before Titanic um, for all that James Horner's melodic intuition and ability to kind of cut through to the emotional core of a story was really quite amazing. And then when it all goes to hell, when the when the orchestra is brought out for the sinking of the ship and you get more of the aliens mannerisms, you get the rumbling pianos, you get the anvils, you get the snare drums. And obviously that's the bit where the film really takes off and the music really sells you. The, the violence of the orchestra really sells you on the absolute horror of that situation um really 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 well and yeah i mean you like quite correctly pointed out the way that horner is always able to ground the music in that thematic identity like you said when the heart will go on theme comes in during the moment of the sinking which then leads into that that very very disturbing like discordant passage as the ship goes down and you've got this choir and you've got all this like these choppy strings that appropriately create this kind of like almost like froth like disturbing sort of essence as the ship goes under which is one of the best scored scenes in the in the film um i, I was always, i was always kind of curious about the um the the track probably the best track on the album there have been several albums for titanic i should say incidentally i'm talking about the original out al- soundtrack album here yeah. But, yeah yeah um the ocean of memories track which is a, the heart of the ocean theme, the diamond that, that Kate wins its character Rose wears. That goes on for about eight minutes on the album and it's one of the Horner's most beautiful creations. I don't remember hearing that in its entirety in the film, which is 
maybe it was just sliced and diced and just cut up and put in different bits. I, I don't know, really. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. It's, it's strange, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah. I, um, I think I think that was that that was the you know, the case that the, it was you know that soundtrack wasn't full. You know, there, there were pieces mm. on there that were that were missing, and and it was you know. Um, but I I feel, I remember having that back in the ninety. I remember buying that on CD that score and listening to it so much. You know, was, was that the really. first film score CD that you got? Would, would you think? Oh, I I, you, I don't know. I I don't necessarily think. I think it it's either it was either. Maybe it was because the one I really remember buying and playing a lot was um, Horner's uh, Zorro score for the Master yeah. Zorro, yeah, which which was a great score. But that was after that. That was about a year later, ninety eight, I think Zorro was. So maybe this was, you know, it could have been, it could have been. I mean, it was it, it, certainly one of the first ones, and I think everyone bought it. You know, I think it was massively popular. I mean, I it, it was it was probably. It was an epochal soundtrack, wasn't it? Because it was so big and yeah. it was so successful, it introduced people our age to film music. I mean, we had heard film, yeah. we obviously heard yeah. film music in Star Wars, but the idea of film music being a commercial success, being this kind of commercial success, that hadn't really happened to no, our generation. No. If it had happened to any generation before, I don't know. It certainly hadn't happened to our generation. I mean, obviously, largely propelled by the Celine Dion track which I, I was never a huge fan of i mean the melody the melody is, is beautiful that, yeah. that goes to james horner i mean will will jennings uh, co-wrote the lyrics of james horner will jennings's association with horner went right the way back to things like an american tale but so the song i always thought was a bit dreary but the, the melody was, was is beautiful and it's so well interpolated into the score and it gives it gives the score a real ballast and a real kind of human delicacy and vulnerability and obviously and then of course you've got the irish <laughs> you've got the irish connection for which horner was was pilloried for quite a lot of his scores because it's yeah. almost like in a lot of his scores it's like why are there penny whistles in it it's got nothing to do with <laughs> ireland <laughs> that happened in quite a lot of, it makes sense yeah. here <laughs> just, yeah yeah it does <laughs> at last it does yeah 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 here I mean, and maybe patriot gains <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it made sense i mean i just i mean obviously the, the depict the depiction of the various class systems in the film titanic is ridiculous i mean you know the the irish uh, they're, they're all they're all dancing around with like fiddles and like sort of like tapping on the floor <laughs> the the english are all really snooty and locking up locking yeah. everyone like below decks yeah of course the americans are you know very leonardo DiCaprio, very gung-ho very tenacious i'm like come on you know it's just i mean just <laughs> narratively it ridiculous you, know, you i think you said it brilliantly earlier as a piece of filmmaking it's tremendous as a piece of narrative not so much. No, no. no, I don't. I, I, I still stand by that. I think if I watch it even now, I'll be like, yeah, this, there's a lot about this that doesn't work. But when it, as it but the way it's mounted is incredible, you yeah. know, and I think I, I, I am going to revisit it maybe, maybe more towards when it gets to 25 years. So it'll be fascinating to see how this holds up after such a long time. But no, it's, a, it's, it's a, still a great score, I think. Still a really, really good score. So yeah, that's, um, that's my disaster movie pick, anyway. And let's then move on and talk about the last one, the last film of uh, February 2022, which is the big one. And this is Death on the Nile, which is by Patrick Doyle for the new Kenneth Branagh uh, Hercule Poirot adaptation, <laughs> uh, Agatha Christie's uh, famous story. So it's Poirot on the Nile, uh, and there's a death. So... Uh, the title doesn't give much away, really, in that regard. And it's a follow-up to Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which came out a few years ago. And, uh, you know, usual thing. Galaxy of, Galaxy of Stars, Gal Gadot, Army Hammer, 
Russell Brand, French and Saunders, you know. Well, I'll say this. It's not quite as great a cast as last time. You know, last time you had, like, Johnny Depp, you had Judy Dench, you had Willem Dafoe. It's not quite that apex this time around for me. But, and to be fair, nor is the film. Nor is the film. I, I, I thought the film was a bit of a damp squib, really. I didn't care for it much at all. Visually quite nice, but, you know, good actors in it for the most part, but I, it didn't... It even... even Putting aside all of the pre-film controversies, whether it's Gal Gadot's view on Israel or Palestine, whether it's Army Hammer and being a fucking weirdo, all these things, put all that aside, I I don't think the film's particularly great, personally. However, the score, absolute belter. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I, I had to take two runs at this score because the first time I listened to it, I actually thought it was really dull, which is surprising. Oh, okay. Because I love Patrick Doyle. Patrick Doyle is one of the greatest melodists working in film today. And again, like George Fenson, um, you know, it doesn't get enough high-profile movies nowadays. But outside no, he doesn't. of his work with Kenneth Branagh, he really doesn't, does he? No, but, and he just sticks with Branagh, doesn't he? He does, he does every Branagh film, pretty much, I think, for the and, most part. And full credit to Branagh for maintaining that loyalty, as we said on the previous mm. episode between Pedro Almodovar, Alberto Iglesias, Steven Spielberg, yeah. John Williams, Kenneth Branagh, Patrick Doyle. Really, really great to see these partnerships enduring since... 1989's Henry V, I think, was that yeah. the first time they worked yeah. together as director-composer. So, um, yeah, the film isn't isn't great. You know, it's, it's a classic Agatha Christie murder mystery that's basically, there is so much green screening of the Egyptian locations that it looks like the Mighty Boosh. I'm sorry. It, 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 looks, it looks so unconvincing. I mean, it's just like I mean, you do expect yeah. old, old well, Greg, you expect old Greg to turn. I'm old Greg. Like, you know, you see him, it's just like... I, I thought this particularly in the sequence where Ken, uh, Annette Benin is painting. Yes, and and I was like, oh my god! It looked like it looked like um, that that when when you had the old Star Trek episodes where they were on like a a, a rocks with, <laughs> set with like rocks and a backdrop. Yeah. It really felt like that. I was like, this is crap. Like, yeah. how is this and, and for the money the you've only- got here? It, it was filmed pre-pandemic, so they could have travelled to these yeah. areas. It's like if they made it during the pandemic, I could understand I why they would do it on a green screen. But this was done at the end of 2019. Why didn't you use real locations? Maybe yeah. the, the logistics of it, they just couldn't be bothered. I don't know. But, I mean, Maybe. I imagine there was second unit stuff done in around, I think, Morocco, I think it was, wasn't it? Not in not Egypt, but Morocco, as I understand it. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, you meant the whole thing do we really need a backstory for Poirot's moustache <laughs> it's ridiculous I mean it was abs- that whole sequence set in like the trenches in World War One was pointless like I was, I was just like what is what really is I mean obviously it sets up the thematic idea that Poirot had a tragic love story and he lost her and all this but it was just such a waste of time the, the, the problem with this film is there's no mystery for about an hour and then yeah. when you do get a mystery he doesn't do a lot of detecting Really? There's not that a lot of those grey cells going on. You know, he kind of just figures it out fairly quickly. And it's not a shocker. You know, when you get to the when you get to the final reveal, it's like, oh yeah, that, that made sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not a really a shock. Could have seen that coming. Kinda did, in a way. And it it's I mean, I'm sure Agatha Christie's source material is much better. And I know there was a previous version, wasn't there, with Peter Ustinoff, which I haven't seen, with a you know much better cast for the, of the time. People like Betty Davis was in that. Now that might be a better version, I don't know. But um, I just thought this was it. it didn't really. It, it was certainly not as good as the Murder on the Orient Express version, which wasn't brilliant altogether. But it was it was very good. I enjoyed that, and it was had a really good score by Doyle. I do think I maybe like this score slightly more than that, actually. 
And maybe it's because I loved, I did love the Egyptian theme running through this. I did think it was absolutely beautiful. And he, and he deploys that at various different points. I thought that was excellent, you know. Um, there's a track called The Pyramids, I think. It's just gorgeous, you know, and, and the final track at the end. So maybe I liked the score a tiny bit more, but I certainly didn't like the film. And I, and, and I, and I don't think it will, I think I might not, no, I don't think everyone will think that way about the score, Sean. You probably disagree as well. I'm not sure, but well, it took me two. It took me two goes at it to really kind of get to the thematic essence of this score. One thing this score doesn't have: it doesn't have an absolute knockout cue like Justice from Murder on the Orient Express, which is sublime. That's one of the best things Doyle has ever done. I mean, heartbreakingly emotional. This um, Death on the Nile doesn't have a, a, a cue as good as that. What it probably is is on second listening more consistent and interesting in terms of its interplay between the different themes. There's about three themes in it. And again, I didn't pick up on any of these. I thought that the first time I listened to it, I thought it was very monothematic, very dull. And I think the reason for that is because at least two of the themes, probably the main theme for Egypt and also the murder theme, are quite nebulous and tonally they're quite similar to each other. And I, I I thought that mid the first time I listened to it, I thought midway through the album, this is really boring. This is this is kind of broiling around in like the minor key registers, and I don't really get a sense of anything going anywhere narratively in terms of the music. And then it picked up again at the end. I listened to it again last night and I was like, oh, I was completely wrong. There are clearly delineated themes in this, but you have to train your ear quite carefully to pick them out. The Egypt theme is brilliant. It's got a real tonal like mystery and grandiosity to it and or maybe what Doyle is doing is like don't score the scenery score the characters reactions to the scenery the fact the characters are in the landscape it's about characters in the landscape rather than rather than the landscape itself um there's a romantic theme that goes through like you know at one point at the beginning it's it's heard in like a wedding context in like a waltz I think it is and then that's used variously for various characters all the way throughout the score. I would point people towards the brilliant John Broxton's review on moviemusicuk.us, which, as ever, John does a tremendous job in articulating, far better than I can, the thematic makeup of scores such as this. Um, the, The murder theme, which does get very, very dark and very violent towards the end. And then, I mean, the idea being that in... You know, out of murder comes a sense of tragedy, comes a sense of loss. It was the same in Murder on the Orient Express. You know, there's nothing good can come of this. Nothing good can come of thwarted love and, you know, violent retribution. And the score, Death on the Nile, does have a sense of kind of like tragedy and melancholy at the end of it, which is what you do want. That's what you expect from it. Um, you know, for all the movies overblown mangling of the, of the sort the source material is very pared down it's a mystery there's no rubbish about you know a backstory for a mustache there's none of that crap in it it's just it is <laughs> it's a murder mystery and agatha christie paces her story so yeah. brilliantly they rattle along so fast and like why didn't kenneth Branagh just make a film like that just get to the point get it done within an hour and a half and just get it done but obviously they must think we have to make it more overblown and more lavish for a modern audience but patrick doyle has always done very, very fine work for Kenneth Branagh. I mean, his score for Hamlet is a masterpiece. I mean, really, really, really great. And again, I mentioned Henry V earlier, but I mean, Much Ado About Nothing, which is just so wonderfully spirited and joyous. And, you know, Patrick Doyle is a fabulous composer. And I think I had to give this one more than a single listen to really appreciate it because I did think it was very boring at first. And I thought, no, I was completely wrong about that, you know, and... Yeah, I think the interplay between the themes is more complicated and more involved than than, than on the surface level, I think. 
uh, it's interesting though that that was your first instinct. So that it, it, that it was it needed more than one. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I get I get it in a way. Like I, th- I think there are themes here that maybe leap out, and there are points of it where it doesn't necessarily always come completely to life. But I think overall it is it is very good. And I, th- I I do think some of the some of his main like I say some of his main themes in this are absolutely beautiful. So yeah, it's 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 a good one. Not so much the film. So um, I, I I'm I'm quite happy if Branagh leaves it there now. Frankly, if I'm honest, I'm not that bothered about it anymore. Like you know, it, it, there's there's plenty more Poirot stories he could do. He's done the probably the two biggest and most famous. But I don't know. I'm not that fussed really. I mean, one one thing to say about the music is because. With, with with the exception of the Poirot character, these Agatha Christie stories are standalone stories. And I think what that means is Doyle can't import themes from one film into another, or he's chosen yeah. not to do it here. So I think what that means is if they do collaborate on another Agatha Christie movie, there'll probably be another clutch of themes in the next movie, whatever that's going to be. I mean, I don't know how successful Death mm. on the Nile has been. I don't even know if they're going to get not a sign-off for another very. one. But I, yeah. I don't think... Not very. Not very, no. So, I mean, it, it's a pity that you can't have that consistency, but that's kind of inevitable given the area in which they're working. So that lack of thematic crossover. I mean, I was hoping that maybe the justice theme would be reappropriated for a different context in this movie, although it's different characters. The idea of murder being tragedy and there are always motivations and there are always victims. I'd hope that that theme might come back in this one and, and, and it doesn't. So, I mean, presumably Branagh talked with Doyle about that and went, no, we want this musically Death on the Nile has to be completely on its own, you know, and which is, which is fair enough. I mean, you know, it may, it makes logical sense, I, I think. But It would be interesting to see if there is any more Poirot films if um, if we get what we get from Doyle. I'll, I'll never be unhappy there's a Doyle score, to be fair. Yeah. So in that sense, do I, would be, I wouldn't mind just to get another Patrick Doyle score, to be fair. So... We'll see. We'll see. I would be surprised if there's any more, but who knows? Let's finish then. Final question. What would you say is the best score for you, Sean, for February of the two episodes we've done and all these new scores? Oh, it's really, really, I really like Kimmy by Cliff Martinez. I thought that was really, really great. I've grown to love Death on the Nile. I really like the Duke. Um, I'm going to say Kimmy, actually. I think Kimmy. Yeah. Do you know what? When I came into this, and for a while, my answer was Death on the Nile, but I think I agree. I th- I think Kimmy really, really surprised me in a really ple- in a really good way, and I-, I found it really enthralling as we talked about, and and really well constructed. So yeah, I I would have said De- and part of me would give it a joint one with Death parts of Death on the Nile, which is pretty beautiful. But I think Kimmy edges it. Yeah, I, I'm gonna agree. I'm gonna agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely well both of them are worth checking out and to be fair it's not been too bad a month overall there are some good ones here the book of boba fett has good stuff the duke is a lot of fun you know so um so yeah a few good ones to to check out and um we're gonna come back a little bit sooner than we normally do aren't we because we're gonna uh we're gonna do the batman um <laughs> and we've because it's a big one we're gonna do a whole episode around batman and batman scores so we're going to go back aren't we and look at some of the some of the earlier tim burton films and the christopher nolan stuff and and all that that'll be fun can i just say as we record this on saturday the 26th of february i've seen the movie um as of uh wednesday the 24th and uh, so i saw it on wednesday the 24th of february and uh michael giacchino's score is one of the highlights 
of the movie. I'll just say that Ooh. as a little primer, as a little teaser. So yeah. <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And we, we do have a bit of music that we've been sent, thankfully, to play as well. So we'll play a bit. We did play the theme from the Batman in the last uh, a couple of episodes ago, but we're going to play a bit more as well. So that's going to be a lot of fun, unpicking the bad universe of scores. Um, yeah. So that's a bonus episode coming um, next, next time, guys, uh, before we come back for the main a couple of episodes in this format for next month. And we've got st- interesting stuff coming up. We've got um, our new score from Anne Dudley, Benedetta, Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, which will be be interesting. We've got... Um, uh, uh, A.K. the Erotic Nun movie. Um, the Erotic Nun. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure yeah. Paul Verhoeven would, would probably appreciate that comparison because Paul Verhoeven is an arch provocateur. Yeah. So <laughs> Almost, yeah, he'd love that. He'd be like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, so we've got... Daniel, another Daniel Pemberton score, the bad guys coming up. We've got uh, Rob Simonson who did uh, Rob Simonson who did a really good uh, score for Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, the Adam Project that's coming up. So there's a few next month, a few interesting ones as well. So we'll be getting to some of those, um, but uh, after the Batman. So yeah, um, some great stuff coming up. So it's been a lot of fun unpicking February with you, Sean. So thanks again as always. Um, Thank you, mate. That's yeah. all right. Where where else can people find you online, and what else are you up to? So you can find me on Instagram at Sean Filmwriter and on Twitter at SeanO22. I'm currently putting the finishing touches together on my book, The Sound of Cinema. Uh, soon, hey. to be pub- yeah, soon to be published by McFarlane Publishers. Really excited about that. So I think we're getting through to the final editorial stages now. So I am indexing. Wonderful. I'm doing the oh. dreaded indexing. Oh, it's, <laughs> it is horrific, isn't it? I know. I've been there. Oh, yeah, it takes like, so oh, long. It's 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 six it's six Microsoft Word pages. Oh, it's ten. Oh no, it's twelve. Oh no, it's yeah. eighteen. It's oh, for heaven's yeah. sake! Like no, I know. I genuinely, genuinely understand your pain, my friend. I really <laughs> do. I think they're lining up for a spring twenty twenty two release. So I'm assuming that's going to cool. be April May. Cool. They've not given me a confirmed release date yet, so that's purely speculative. But I will hopefully have more updates in the future. So. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. A uh, couple of episodes time, we might know more. So wonderful, fantastic. Cannot wait, cannot wait. So you can find me at uh, AJ Black Writer on Twitter and you can find more broadly what I'm up to on We Made This at W Made This as well, uh, where you can find Sean's other podcast, Frame to Frame, um, which he does with Andy Williams, which is great. And uh, you can find me on various other different things. And if you want to check me out uh, specifically, look up uh, ajblackwriter.com. Uh, and I'm also doing writing on uh, failcritics.com, which is uh, sort of making a revival, as is the podcast, and we made this. So lots to look up, lots to look up and check out. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us, guys, for these two episodes. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Um, you, as I say, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to Apple Podcasts um, and give us a, uh, a review uh, and a rating of five stars, ideally. Also on Spotify, you can rate us as well. That would help. Uh, and if you want to help our network sustain all these podcasts coming towards you um please consider supporting us on patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash we made this film and tv music though is not all we're discussing so we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed on the network in just a minute um but yeah we'll be back for the batman soon so until then stay safe and well and we'll see you next time discussing the music of film and television between the notes elsewhere on we made this We dig music. I got given a set of mindfulness cards as a Christmas present. Okay. And um, it's a load of fucking bollocks, it really is. Is, is it like, but, I'm, with the mean cards, I've got them, like, this image of them being like Brian Eno's oblique strategies, but with, like, go and read a book. 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, but but so uh, these cards, you, you read them one a day and you're meant to do the tasks. And the task on one day was... Go listen and, to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> go and listen to a piece of music that you haven't heard before and listen to it without any prejudice, regardless of genre. And I'm like... Have you met me? That isn't possible. <laughs> I do that every day anyway. So I, I went and listened to something I hadn't heard before and didn't know what genre it was going to be because it was from um, a set of polls on Twitter. And I listened to this song. It was about someone and obsessive thoughts and worrying they were going to start cutting themselves. And I'm thinking, well, this isn't very mindful. <laughs> Chucky Vision. Chucky podcast. Yeah, I'm, vague, I'm vaguely familiar familiar with Point Horror. Did you ever read any? Maybe as a kid, but I don't know them as well as I do Goosebumps. Right. Okay. But um, how do you feel the kind of adaptation from the books to the series worked? Were they direct adaptations of the books, or were they more inspired by continuation of? Uh, they were pretty direct, actually. There's like hmm. 60 books or so, or at least in the original run. He always did those like Goosebumps 2000 and stuff. Like, he was always updating the titles, which, I mean, God knows what kids are reading these days. I don't know if they're reading the original books. Gotham U, a Batman podcast. Hear what you're saying, and I can't help but think, like, is it just nostalgia that's giving michael keaton the pass on this but also it's not his fault warner no. brothers came and gave him a check and was like hey be batman what's he gonna do say no no not at all and michael keaton himself even loved being batman uh he did an interview not too long ago i don't remember what the interview was but he uh was talking about coming back and he described why he didn't do batman forever and you know for years there have been speculations there have been rumors and he put it to rest and what everyone said was true he just didn't like the direction that Warner Brothers was going with the Bat franchise check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.